Good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody as we continue in our Jericho Walls series. Thanks for joining us today or being with us in uh, one of the rooms or here in the auditorium as uh, we continue to look at ways that we can knock down walls with courage. We've had a lot more walls than even I anticipated in this series. I had told you in the beginning of the series we're gonna walk up to Jericho, but the Lord just kept prompting and leading to continue to walk through the book. And so these last few weeks have been like bonus material, but uh, praise God for that. Uh, We've talked about the wall of anxiety, wall of generational sin, wall of bondage, wall of incapability, disregard, shame, impossibility, vengeance, folly, and last week's self-reliance as we talk about issues that we deal with inside our homes and are being dealt with in our neighborhoods. Have you ever heard about the War of the Oaken Bucket? Anybody read about that this week? Anybody? No, no, you haven't. Well, I hadn't either, okay? But this occurred legend says, if you will, in uh, November 15, 1325. It happened in northern Italy. There was a, a group of warriors from the Modenese town that went into the Bolognese and stole their bucket, took it back to their town and hung the bucket. It sounds like a sorority thing, right? For colleges, right? They hung their bucket up in their, in their town, okay? And so, the Bolognese, the Bolognese, they gathered together soldiers to go back and get their bucket. How many, you might ask? 30 some thousand soldiers to go get the bucket. This is an important bucket. But they will defend their pride. You will not be taking our bucket. And the Modernese people were ready with 5,000 of their soldiers and 2,000 knights. So 7,000 to 30,000, the odds don't sound good. But in a two-hour span, the Modernese defended and kept their bucket. Yet 4,000 soldiers died over this battle. You know, do you really think it was about the bucket? No, no. And isn't it often true, and you may have heard this said, the issue is often not the issue. I mean, they were, they were going blows over their fantasy football team. Well, no, it was probably a little bit more than that, right? Um, um, unfortunately, I don't think those two are together anymore. I don't, I don't think she's with him anymore. Uh, something about the toothpaste. No, 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 no. There's something deeper. And this illustration that 4,000 lives were lost over a bucket speaks to the fact that there's also something often deeply rooted underneath things that we're making a big deal that aren't as big a deal as we might be making them. And may there might possibly be no greater offender then not the homes in our neighborhood, but the church. What are we talking about? You see, the church can often fight, sometimes vehemently, with one another over buckets. Oh, they come in the forms of drum sets and clothes and wall paint, service times, You name it, 
volume, music taste. We pick our buckets. And it's amazing how we attack one another over those things. And if someone can add a little juice to the story, then it goes even further. But how many churches are dying or are dead because of arguments over buckets? Today I wanna talk about a real difficult challenge that the church often faces, not only locally, but globally. And that is judgmentalism and going after their own team and dividing against one another and hurting one another. If you are in or have come from a judgmental, toxic type of culture in a church, then you know that throughout that church are probably the three favorite words of judgmentalism. What are the three favorite words? Here's the first one, appearances, appearances. Everything is about appearances. Make sure this, this, this is, I'm uncomfortable with this. I didn't like how they, it's about appearances. Well, we go to that service and this service. I mean, the 830 crowd is more spiritually than you guys because they get up earlier. <laughs> I'm smiling if you're at home when I said that. Preference is the second word. My preference, it should be this way. It's a shame. My problem is it's just terrible that. Preference, preference, performance. Well, we do this and I do this. And if I did this, then we tie that and we give that and we go this many things and we do this. It's all about these words. Oh, and they're so dividing. And so today, the wall we're gonna tackle, the wall we're going after is a wall that might be uncomfortable for us to talk about, but it's the wall of judgmentalism. And I think it's so important to talk about this because do you understand how many people might not be in this room or willing to go anywhere near the word of God being preached on Sunday because of feeling they're unwelcome, they're unlovable, they're disgusting, they're unacceptable, they don't measure up. And so if we can talk about this, and if we can deal with the wall of judgmentalism, we might even be able to find some characteristics in our own hearts, and where we're going, ooh, I might be leaning that way just a little bit myself. And maybe it'll help us deal better with other people in a time period where the enemy wants to crush the church and he uses division to do it. We're gonna expose some of his schemes today. We're gonna lean into some wisdom from scripture on how to avoid this in our own lives. And we're gonna try to replace a grace-filled approach versus the judgmental approach as we walk through Joshua today. Heavenly Father, use your word to teach us and lead us. We came to hear from you, God, and so may you be present in this place. May you show yourself through your word to us in our own hearts. May the Spirit work in our lives and prompt us to want to live according to your word. Would you clear the house of distraction? Would you help us to focus on your word as we long to hear from you today, God? We've gathered in this place 
to be changed by you. Do your work. Amen. Okay, now we're going to do a huge leapfrog in the book of Joshua. We were at chapter 10, 11, and now we're going to jump to chapter 22. You say, what? That's a lot of chapters. Well, if you read them this week, seeing that I told you I'd be in 22, if you're on our, our email list, okay, then you can see that why I probably didn't preach it. You say, why are you hiding from it? No, that would be jumping to a conclusion. It's allotment, division, conquering, allotment, division, conquering, allotment, division, conquering, and listing it all, okay? So I'm gonna give you a picture. You all seem to like it. When I give you a picture, I'm gonna give you a picture of those 10 chapters, okay? Here it is, ready? Sabang, okay. This is what happens in those 10 chapters. Okay, Judah, you get that area. Simeon down there. Dan over here. Ephraim here. They conquer the area up north. They do the northern conquest. They did the southern conquest, which we walked through. Jericho, Ai, Geba, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. We see the Engedi down here. We, we bend down along this side. And then they went up into the north. Manasseh, Sakar, Zebulon, Naphtali, Asher. And Joshua just keeps dividing the land. Oh, it's awesome, the victory and the victory. And Joshua now is that leader, he's that conqueror, and he is attacking and taking over the promised land. But remember, do you remember this? From the beginning of our sermon series, that Moses, as well as Joshua, promised two and a half tribes that they could stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River once all the fighting and conquering was done. That's where we arrive today in chapter 22 of Joshua. We're not avoiding those chapters. We're leaning into those chapters and saying, we've arrived at that spot so I can show you this incredible account in chapter 22 that many of you may not realize is in scripture. I'm finding that, that some of you might be reading through Joshua for the first time in your life or just encountering some of these passages in a brand new and refreshing way. And you're seeing that, wow, this really speaks into my life right now. And I think this is going to happen today in this passage because this is an incredible account of the two and a half tribes. And why is it two and a half? Because Manasseh is on both sides. You can see the two and a half tribes are going to go claim their territory after seven years of fighting like they promised. And now it's time for them to return to their land. And that's where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadonites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, it's almost got like he's got a little lesson. Hey, before you go, I know there might be some college students in the room for the last time. You're heading back maybe this week or whatever, and I'm sorry I brought that up, but... There's always those moments where like, hey, before you go, let's get a few things straight as you're heading out, all these things. Joshua has an as you're heading out message for the two and a half tribes. He says this, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you and you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you've been careful to keep charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given you rest to your brothers as he promised. Therefore, Turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful. What? Only be careful. What? There's some warnings here. I listed the warnings for you that come up here in the next few verses. Only be careful to observe the commandment of the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Now, how many of you know 
Jesus's summary of the law. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And love others. Love the Lord your God with your heart and soul. We hear in the New Testament, listen to Joshua, who step in the seminary for a minute with me. Joshua is a type of Christ, which means his life often foreshadows some of the things of Christ. Here you have hundreds of years before Christ, Joshua says lines that you would swear came out of Jesus's mouth. This is really cool. Listen to this. He says, the servant of the Lord command you to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that beautiful? So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. What an amazing moment of success. They've conquered the land. Joshua blesses them and says, well done guys, you can go now. And they prepare to cross the Jordan to go to their tents. What a big moment. What an emotional moment as they cross over and take their land where Reuben and Manasseh, and we see these tribes gathering together on the east side of the Jordan where they asked to be because they felt it was best for their livestock. I bet it was an emotional moment. I bet it was a moment where when you fought with somebody and you've been in the trenches with them for years, there's a bond there that's very special. I bet there were a lot of hugs. I bet there was a lot of tears. But I'm thinking underneath that whole surface, there was a little bit of questioning as to why do they think it's necessary to stay on that side? I mean, God told us to be on this side. I wonder if their intentions are good. Do you ever, do you ever question somebody's intentions do, do, you ever, do you ever sometimes believe the worst in people? Do you, ever, do you ever, when you hear something is occurring, kind of go, hey, I bet it's about that, and you draw a negative conclusion? I think there were some of those in the camp of the Western side, and you say, how do you know? Because of the reaction that occurs in the next few verses. What an incredible account that many might not have realized they're in here, but you're gonna see at this moment of success, at this moment of triumphant departures, it's when the enemy likes to strike the most, doesn't he? And that's exactly what happens. Watch what scripture tells us in Joshua 22. And when they came into the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. They went big, they built a huge altar of imposing size. And, and, and the people, when they heard it, said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the other side that belongs to the people of Israel. What are they doing? There's only one altar. Moses told us we worship at Shiloh. What are they doing? They're supposed to come back three times a year for the sin offerings. They're not supposed to be building another altar. They heard a report about an altar and they immediately reacted. How often do we react to reports? God didn't order this. What's going on here? 
Let's see how they deal with this. And then the people of Israel, they heard about it. And the whole assembly of the people of Israel, they gathered at Shiloh and they gathered to make war against them. I, I, I stopped for a second in my, in my reading. I went, to make war? Can't we just talk about this? Hey, they built an altar. Let's get together and talk. Okay, I'm coming. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Like what if you walked in the conference room this week? Hey, I heard something about what they did over in that building over there. Let's go. Okay, okay, before we go, what, what? And isn't there always somebody in the office like this? They are full red alert on every report, right? Right? They, they must watch their TV with, with the whole, no, no, hopefully they don't hold an ax, okay? But, but they heard it and they gathered to make war. So outrage over the altar. We hear a report and now we have outrage over the altar and they've gathered to make war. They've got an old, or they've got an oaken bucket and it's big. We need to go deal with this. Why is it such a big deal? Well, my Hebrew scholars in the room are going because of Deuteronomy chapter 13. What does that say? Well, it says that they are to confront any, any kind of false worship for them to build another altar for possibly sin sacrifices. I mean, that is against what God would have for them. This is wrong. This is terrible. And it needs to be dealt with immediately. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans. They're getting every big wig in the area. Come on, we're going. We gotta deal with this immediately. And scripture continues and it says this, and they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, thus says the congregation of the Lord. Whoa, what, what do you say? They say this. What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? We have a report about an altar. We have outrage over the altar. And now we have an accusation over the altar. What is this breach against God? This is wrong. This needs to be dealt with. You've gone against God's word. You've gone against Joshua's warnings. You've gone against the law. Wow. And then they get really frustrated and they start sharing why they're so wound up. And they say this, have you not had enough with the sin of Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? They continue and they say, and if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he's gonna to be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. You did this and this is gonna affect all of us. But now if the land, your possession is unclean, pass over to where the Lord's land is and where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. What are you doing with this altar? And so now there's judgment over the altar. Do not rebel against the Lord. 
What's gonna happen? What will be the response? What will they do? How will the people of Reuben and Gad respond to this? What are they gonna say? Well, let's continue to read. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, what do they say? The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows, and let Israel itself know. What, what? I, have you ever heard this phrase in scripture? The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. What, what's he saying here? It's almost like I, I'm gathering this. Whoa, 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 whoa. If it was rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Wait, What? There's a reason for our altar. And they go into the reasons. Listen to this. For building an altar to turn away from the Lord. No, but we did it for fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. And therefore we said, let us build an altar, not, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be witnesses between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And then we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from the following the Lord by building an altar of burnt offering, grain offering or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands by the tabernacle. Wait, wait, what? We built it as a memorial. We built it for our children to look at and say, we follow God. We built it for protection from your children saying to our children, you're on the wrong side of the Jordan. You're not of God. We built it for the Lord. It's just a copy. We're not planning on doing that. And there's this moment where you kind of sense this if you can picture this. Why did you build the altar? And they're like, Mighty one is the Lord, mighty one is the Lord. Why did you do it? We did it for our kids. Oh, why don't you say so? Do you ever know that this account is in scripture? Well, I mean, you should have said something. They just did. It was Israel who jumped to all the conclusions. Have you ever done that? Have you ever heard a report, created your own narrative, worked yourself into an outrage, began to accuse the other party, and then judge them as if you're the righteous one? No. This is exactly what happened. And when Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with them, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, and they spoke, and it was good in their eyes. And then they went back and they told everybody in Israel and Phinehas, the Elias, excuse me, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and Manasseh, today, 
We know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Actually, Israel, you never were in the hand of the Lord because that wasn't their intent. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Altar of witness almost became a dividing piece, a dividing instrument, a dividing bucket, if you will, a dividing altar between God's people because of misconceptions, of jumping to conclusions, of getting upset, of accusing and hurting. And folks, why I wanna point this out is right here in this text in Joshua 22, you have what I wanna call the four desires of the divider. This is what he desires. Make no mistake, we tend to think that people are our enemy, but our enemy is not flesh and blood. This is flesh and blood, you're flesh and blood. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a divider, and his name is Satan. The Satan is how it's referred to in Hebrew, which can mean the accuser. He wants to divide people and he has schemes in how he does it. And I'm gonna show you his four schemes as laid out here in Joshua 22. And you can decide for yourself if he's scheming against the church in the day and age we live in. Here's the first one. You hear a report and you react to it. And the people of Israel heard it and they jumped right to the worst possible conclusion about the two and a half tribes. And that's why even to this day, you'll hear reports and inflammatory language is used. A crushing blow is dealt to. Can you believe the, it's all very much brought out, it's explosive language to get us to react because it's so much easier to click on negative than positive but that divides people because we jump to conclusions based on a report that might have a narrative designed around it to get you to respond a certain way. It's part of the m and tool. And what happens is that leads us often to the second, responding with outrage. They gathered to make war. Nothing ever good happens with outrage. And that is part of the divider scheme. He wants you to hear reports, become enraged, because that will lead you to contriving accusations against others. And that's exactly what Israel did. What is this breach of faith against God? We heard you did this and this makes us sick. How could you do this? It wasn't what they were doing. 
but they've already drawn the narrative that that's exactly what was happening. And then finally, it leads to confronting as the judge. Do not rebel against the Lord our God. We're the judge and we have brought the gavel down on you, two and a half tribes. When conflict comes, make no mistake, the enemy loves it. And we are in a time period where especially the church is capable of falling prey to this scheme. They hear reports, they respond in outrage, they create accusations, and they confront as the judge. And they attack one another, they attack the people of the world, they attack people around them, they attack their communities, and the devil's going, keep it up, I love it. I love when we put our light out. He's trying to extinguish your light, church. And he pulls this on the church all the time. And we gotta be careful that we don't let the devil win. It's a phrase I often use in any conflict where I'll have two folks or somebody's upset about something and I'll say, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's not let the devil win here. You guys are on the same team. We're not. My Bible studies at seven o'clock. And then they went and they put their Bible study at seven o'clock too. And that's, that's, that's just wrong. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's zoom out for a second. Let's not let the devil win here. We got two groups doing Bible study at seven o'clock. We got people gathering and studying the word of God at seven o'clock. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. We got two groups. You see all the mud on the gym floor? There was like 150 kids here Wednesday night. There's mud all over the gym floor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you just say? What? What? We got 150 kids here on Wednesday night? Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. Okay, what were you saying about the floor? Don't let the devil win. And this is what he wants to do. Did you hear that report? That is a shame, that is a disgrace. And then we go to outrage and then we start making accusations and before you know it, everyone's out to get you. And the devil's going, that's great. Cheer the kids ministry and the adult. And if you've ever been in a toxic culture like this, it's not fun and it's not funny. And people, families, lives, are destroyed over oaken wood buckets. Why? Because the devil got them all worked up over something that wasn't really the issue. Oh, may we attack the wall of judgmentalism. May we attack it head on because it can creep into all our lives where we hear something, think something, respond a certain way and go a certain direction. Why? Because it might fit what we want to think or have been thinking about them. How do you know if judgmentalism is sneaking into your life? Did you know there's some symptoms of it? You're like, oh no, where are we going there? Yeah, but just like, let's all be nice to each other. We've all struggled at some point here, okay? But here are some signs and symptoms you might have a little judgmentalism in your life. Are you quick to find fault with people? There, there's, some, there's some of you, some of us sometimes, we, we, the person starts at zero. Like, I don't like you, prove me wrong. 
That, that's not a good way to live life, okay? It's just not a good way, okay? Um, are you quick to find fault? Do you rush to negative conclusions about people? You know what I bet they're doing? I bet they did that for that. Here's another one. Do you evaluate on appearance? Do you see, you see, what, you see what they were doing? Did you see that? Did you see what they were wearing? It says a lot, doesn't it? Do, do you justify a disrespectful approach in the way you talk on social media and things like that as necessary to get your point across? Um, do you uh, focus on fixing other people as if you're the standard and everybody else has to measure up? Um, do you ever believe the worst of other people? If you hear something said, you would quickly believe the worst versus the best of a person. How about do you view yourself as the standard? Do you know that there's traits and behaviors at times? Um, a judgmental person can often find themselves to be very pessimistic about life. They often have very few friendships, very few, and the ones they have are, are fading. They often have social anxiety, are easily outraged, fear of doom on the horizon. They have a very low view of self, believe it or not, because the critic they use on everyone else is even louder in their own hearts. You know what? There's a wounded person in the judgmental person. And I bet they're wounded because they didn't live up to somebody performance-wise. I bet their appearances have been overly criticized in their life. And I bet preferences have destroyed some of their relationships. Have you ever learned to look at people through the fact that there might be a wound behind that mouth versus only the symptoms? Oh man, judgmentalism can creep into all of us and scripture's pretty clear about how we are to judge and how we are not to judge. There is a way to rightly judge and there is a way to wrongly judge. And so one of my umbrella verses Whenever it comes to whether um, I see something that I'm tempted to judge, here's one of my umbrella verses that helps me knock the wall down from being judgmental. Here, here's one of those verses. It's this, do not judge or you too will be judged. Wait, what? For in the same way you judge others, Chris, you're gonna be judged. And with the same measure you use against other people, Chris, it's gonna be measured to you. I step back from that and go, I'm going grace then. I want to be a grace-filled person. You know, Chris, you want to be hard on everybody? You want to make them do this and this? Okay, well, that's the standard. It's going to be used for you. Well, then let me lower it. No, no, no. Let me grace it. And let me remember my phrase. Do not let the devil win. Let's put this to the test. What do you mean? Let's bring up our four categories where the devil tries to trick, especially the church. Okay, okay, reacting to a report, responding with outrage, contriving an accusation and confronting as the judge. He wants us all to get the gamble out on people and attack them. And this is his method. And we see it all the way back in Joshua 22. How can I rise above judgmentalism? Well, well let's put it to the test a little bit. Let's say Jen Random reaches out and says this. What do you do when you hear about someone's poor opinion of you? That's always fun, right? When you hear that somebody said that about you, oh, that's fun, right? Any sisters in the room where you heard about the other sister's opinion of your parenting? That's fun, isn't it? It always goes great. What do you do when you hear about someone's poor opinion of you? I want you to stop because you're gonna be tempted to go, what did they say about me? Oh, they said this? Well, they're an idiot. <laughs> well, that's a new one, good job. 
Well, you know what? They're dead to me. There you go. They're dead. Okay. They're no longer alive. Let's go eat. You can do that. And the devil's going, let's do it. Kill them. I love it. We can't let them win. Especially if that's a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Why not? It's easier this way. You're dead. See him at the grocery store. We go to the other aisle. It's easy. I do this all the time. Wait, what? Don't let the devil win. How do I do that? I love this verse. It's in Ecclesiastes. It's one of those sneaky good ones. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Hey, hey, before you say anything, don't let the devil win. I know they just said something bad about you, but, but this verse tells me this. Chris, have you ever said something bad about somebody? <clears throat> even you've done that. So apply some grace here because this isn't something you haven't done. Don't let the devil win. He wants to destroy the rest of your day. He wants to destroy that relationship. He wants you thinking only evil thoughts, only negative thoughts about them. Don't let them win. Don't take it to heart. Don't let that seek sink down. I just heard recently of a pastor of a relatively large church. He says, from time to time, you'll hear what other people say about you when you're a pastor, okay? And he says, this is my phrase to battle back. He says this, they didn't mean it. I'm like, what? Oh, they didn't mean it. Yes, they did. I bet they really did mean it. Nah, they didn't mean it. What's he doing? Well, he's applying like what might not be true. No, no, he's actually believing the best of them. This verse right here, it's 1 Corinthians 13, seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know one of the things that love does? It believes all things. Do you know what that can be translated as? That can be translated as believes the best in other people. Eh, they didn't mean it. They were probably having a bad day. What's he doing? I'm not allowing that to go down into my heart and ruin today that they said that. Hey, there's been times where I've said things about people I probably shouldn't have. They get some grace on that. I am not going to react to that report and let the devil win. Okay, okay. Jen Random reaches out again and she asks this one. Well, what do you do when you hear someone said something that offends you? Interesting. Do you respond with outrage? Yeah, you go over there and you go, oh, you got something to say, I'm standing right here. You can do that. You can jump on your keyboard, you can do all these things, but I'm gonna say stop. Don't let the devil win. What do you mean? We know the passage. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And don't give that devil a foothold in your life. He wants to get some malice in there. He wants some anger in there and he wants it to seep down and impact you, impact your family, ruin your weekend, ruin your relationships. He wants to get a foothold in your life. And so when you hear someone said something that offends you, I want you to not let the devil win and give it 24 hours before you say a word. Don't trust yourself in that first 24 hours. You, 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 you Chris, Chris, Chris. What is this, some self-help class? Give it 24 hours? We came to a Bible church. We want to hear scripture. Here it is. Here it is. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook the offense. 24 hours is good sense. Take a break for a second. 
Don't trust what you're about to say when you just heard that. Here's another one. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. There is never a time where you see someone in complete outrage and anger and go, there's wisdom talking. Never. Anger never gets your point across. I don't know why we default to it, but I can promise you the devil's going, say a few words that really hurt while you're doing this. And then a family argument that happened eight years ago has still divided a dad and his daughter because of words said in those first moments when just being quiet for a little bit could have saved so much. That's not a self-help, that's scripture. Jen Random reached out again and she said, what do you do when you hear someone being criticized for something they did? <laughs> a toxic culture, did you hear so-and-so? Oh, 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 I didn't know it. I'll tell you what else I heard. A toxic culture loves slander and it's so awful. When you hear someone being criticized for something they did, it tells you a lot about your heart as to whether you want to keep talking about it. it says a lot, guys. Let's step back for a minute. Don't let the devil win. He's going, have Adam. Here's your chance. They messed up. Did you see they? Can you believe that? Yeah, and if you're in, the devil's winning. Don't let him win. Scripture says this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You can't go on hearsay. You can't go on just what you see. There might be so much more to it that you don't realize. I read of, a, I read of a, an account where Chuck Swindoll, the, the famous author, was traveling and speaking at a conference. And he, and he shared a story that made me kind of, I'll never forget it. And so I committed it to my memory when I'm tempted to judge somebody based on what I see them doing. This helps me overcome the enemy trying to destroy and win. You say, you say what? It, this is the line I use. There's more to that story. What? Scripture says this. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. Can you believe they did that over there? Did you hear that organization did this? I am shocked that that happened. Oh, well, did you hear why they did it? Oh, no, okay. Oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. Probably should have taken back what I said last week. Eh, you may be. But it's out there, isn't it? So I like to say there's probably more to that story. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. In other words, there's more to the story. Get all the facts before you drop all your accusations, your outrage, and your reactions because that's just going to let the devil win because he would love to spit a narrative that's not true. There's probably more to that story. You say, where does it come from, Chuck Swindoll? Well, he spoke at this conference. He got there night one and this lady, and I'll, I'll try to do the best to remember the story, but the lady brought up her husband. He's, he's so excited to meet you and to hear you speak. He's been waiting so long. He's so excited. And, and he acknowledged that, and he went up to speak his first night. It's a weekend conference. Spoke his first night, looked down like the fourth or fifth row, and there he was. And within five minutes of him speaking, he was out cold, sleeping. Night two, he thought, ah, oh, he just must have had a rough week. I'm just glad he was here. Night two, slept through the whole thing. 
Session three, slept again, comes up to him after three sessions with his wife. And his wife says, oh, my husband loves you so much. He appreciates you so much. And Schwindel says, I'm in my head going, baloney. The guy slept through everything. And then she continued. He has advanced cancer right now and he's on medicine. When he sits still, he doesn't sleep well at night and he gets here still and he starts falling asleep. We do get a recording. He goes home and listens to it again, but he just wants to be in the same room with you. There's probably more to the story. I choose to do this. Even if it's just my imagination, driving, it helps me apply grace. Someone cuts me off, I go, man, they must have to get to the hospital. I need to pray for them. You got two options in those moments. You can do a negative narrative, which may be accurate, or you can do a positive accurate, but but you got a choice on how that impacts your day. My dad taught me another one. He goes, you're driving real slow. You ever have a car driving so slow when you got somewhere to be? And they're driving so slow. Teenagers, listen hard on this. My dad taught me this. He goes, that's probably the Lord sending his angel to slow you down from an accident up ahead. Just trust his speed. I have done that in my head when you want your front bumper as close to their back bumper and you trucks, you guys with trucks with your big headlights blasting in our rear view mirror, you like it even more. And, and, and I just apply that grace and go, it must be the Lord wants to slow me down. There must be more to that story. Are you quick to jump to conclusions that are negative? The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. Scripture says if one gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. Jen Random reaches out for a final time and she says, what do you do when you hear that someone is doing something sinful then? Well, first I'm gonna ask, is it a believer or an unbeliever? Because I think the church has gotten in the, in the habit of trying to attack unbelievers for believing like unbelievers, which the apostle Paul says is folly. Don't let the devil win. Paul says this, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Why would you expect someone who has not committed their life to Jesus Christ to walk in the things of scripture. Paul says, that's for God. And so that's not my job to attack the unbelieving world. That would put my light out. My light is to shine Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world by showing them the truth, but not in a way that's anything other than gentle. And that would be my second question. If someone's doing something sinful, how will my approach be? Don't let the devil win. Scripture says this, brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Yet keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you're gonna confront somebody, there's a way to do it. And it's gentle, not, I heard, shame on you. This is disgusting. Because the measure you show them will be the measure used for you and the approach you use is to be that of grace so restoration can occur. If there's nine names that they're called while you're confronting, that's gonna be really hard to have restoration because of that. 
And so we need to be careful in those moments to not let the devil win. And so something I do to try to remind myself of that whenever I hear someone might be walking in sin and in my accountability that God's given me in scripture, there are times where I do need to address it. I always remember this, my log before their speck. My log before, church, hear this, especially if you're angry all the time at sin. My log before their speck, this comes from Christ. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Well, because I, I kind of just want to overlook what I got going on. We're focusing on that. Jesus says, I know. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? And then he continues and says this, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you're gonna go confront some sin or point out some sin in somebody else's life, it's as if Jesus is saying, uh, um, you are? Okay, before you go, I'd like you to go through your house, find a mirror and look in it and then take that log out and then go to their house. Isn't it interesting how the enemy wants us to focus so much on someone else's faults that we apply grace to ourselves in a measure we do not apply to them? Got an illustration for that, Chris? Yeah, I do, I do. I actually do. Um, dealing with somebody in truth, yet showing them grace, there's an incredible illustration. Um, it's found in John 8. There was a woman committing adultery and she was caught in the act. So clearly they were watching to catch her. They must've heard that she was doing this and they caught her in the act and they brought her into the street and they put her there. How many of you would like to have a private sin and be placed on the stage here right in front of everybody? And then the crowd, and we're gonna make them you just for today, you're non-judgmental people, I know. She was caught in adultery. You know what the law says, Jesus. The law says she should be stoned and killed for this. That's what the law says. Let's see if Jesus stands for the truth or if he's this grace guy. We'll find out. What are you gonna do, Jesus? You gonna say, let her go? Just let her get away with sin? Is that what you're gonna do? Or are you gonna stone her like she's supposed to be stoned, like the law says? What are you gonna do? And Jesus is there, and they think they got him trapped. Let's pause the story for a second. Jesus is never trapped. Okay, back to the story. He looks at her. He looks at all of them holding the stone. Do you think he knows everyone's heart in the room? And this is what my savior does. My savior doesn't go over where the rock throwers are, which is good, because I know what it feels like to make mistakes. Did anybody else in the room? I also know what it feels like sometimes to stand out there. And I watch Jesus and he does something really incredible. He does this. If you've ever worked with children, there is a power to getting down next to them and looking in their eyes and saying, hey buddy, I need you to calm down. There's a power to that. 
It says, I'm right here with you. I'm on your level. I'm not coming to yell at you. I'm coming to tell you we gotta do this. You know what Jesus does? Scripture says he leans down next to her. I mean, this girl's out in the middle of the open and they caught her in the act. So she is in such a vulnerable place. They're all standing around her with stones and Jesus kneels down next to her. Shouldn't you be over there, Jesus, the Holy One? He kneels down next to her. He looks, and then he starts drawing in the sand, Scripture says. And many people have conjectured about what he's drawing in the sand. Some have said, he's probably writing out all the sins of the people with the stones. You did this last night. You did that. I don't know. But he starts drawing in the sand, and then he stands up. And I bet you could hear a pin drop. And he says this. If I say stoner, I fulfill the law. If I say let her go, then I don't fulfill the law and I don't stand with truth. Jesus says this. All right, here's how we're gonna do this. Ye, or let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone. Huh? We're gonna stone her, let's bring order to the process. Who here hasn't sinned? Go ahead and throw it. And then Jesus does something amazing. Says he goes and he kneels down again. <laughs> they begin to walk away. It says the oldest to the youngest. It's like the older people are like, oh, I got tons of sins, I'm out of here. The younger ones are still like, I'm kind of righteous. Oh, I guess not. If grandpa left, I should leave. And then Jesus says to her, does anybody condemn you? No, no. And then Jesus says, neither do I. Now go on, it's no big deal. Nope, he doesn't say that. He says, now go and sin no more. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's the measure he applies to me. And if he applies that to me, while I was yet a sinner, he died for me. How am I not applying that to others? Put it down, Chris. There's only one. The altar of witness was something the enemy wanted to do to divide God's people. May we as a church especially when we're going through a time of change. When we hear a report, not jump to the worst scenario, not be quick to outrage, nor draw up accusations without knowing the whole story. For the enemy wants to make us judge one another and divide us. And he loves to come in in those times when you think everything's great. Let's not fall for his trap. Let's not let him allow our light to stop shining in the way we behave, the way we talk, and the way we live. Many of you have maybe grown up in an environment that was judgmental, have grown up in an environment where you've been judged by your appearances. Good grief, church. I heard in this church Okay, when I was 17, that my hair was not like a Christian boy's hair. Now look at me, okay? <laughs> All right? 
And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying because I'm bald, okay? So now I would love to have that unchristian haircut or whatever, I guess, right? No, whatever. You know what I'm saying. God judges the heart. Let's stick with his game plan. And let's be showing the measure he's shown to us to others. And when there is a time where we can say that is actually wrong, may we do it with incredible grace. Why? Because I don't want the devil laughing at our church and I don't want the devil laughing at you for falling to his traps of dividing when you're on the same team. Heavenly Father, thank you for this body of Christ gathered here together and those listening today. Lord, may we not fall trapped to the schemes of the divider. May we instead... When we hear a report, may we not think the worst, but believe the best. Until otherwise noted, Lord, that's what we're called to do. Lord, when when we hear something that, that bothers us, may we not be prone to outrage for good sense. Is slow to a response and processes it and prays over it. Lord before we contrive accusations, may we make sure we know the whole story. And Lord, before we're tempted to judge someone, may we remember that those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. God loves them so much. And the enemy wants us to fight with our brothers and sisters. And he wins when our light dims. And Lord, may that not be the case. Lord, may we apply grace. May we hold to the truth. But may we people see Jesus Christ in us. And may the walls of judgmentalism go down. Amen.